Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 15. Back when I was living at my father's house in preparation for the move to New York, I received a call from a friend of mine, Mr. Ray. He called me on three-way with his cousin and former DJ for Curtis Blow, AJ Scratch, who, thanks to Ray, was aware of ASAP's success. He gave me the classic spiel about who he knew and assured me that he could pass my music along. It wasn't my first rodeo, so I gave him the standard brush-off that I gave every local drug dealer looking to sign me to their non-existent record label. Yeah, no doubt. Just get my music from Ray. He never did. Once I moved to New York, I reconnected with Mr. Ray, a New York native, which subsequently led to a reconnection to AJ. I didn't expect much in the way of garnering any significant connections from knowing him, but I figured I'd let him humor me. In our first meeting, he waxed poetic about how he wrote the song AJ for Curtis Blow, which he aptly named after himself, but never got paid for. He told stories of knowing the all-powerful Lior Cohen when he was just a road manager for Run DMC. He also seemed to think that, for some reason, Russell Simmons owed him a favor. We met up in Harlem at a church that Curtis Blow was using as the hip-hop church. He wanted to introduce me to him, why I had no idea. After a brief interaction with the now born-again legend, we went back to AJ's apartment in the Bronx to talk business. It was apparent from his living conditions that he was dirt poor, and the lack of personal belongings, coupled with how he spoke, made me feel like he had a current or past drug addiction. I could see how our relationship would go and where he was in his life. Mid-blunt hit, he told me that he could definitely get my music to Lior and Russell, and that he was sure I'd get signed. It sounded insane, but when you're as hungry as I was for stardom, you at least half listen. I left him a demo CD and put the meeting out of my head. A few days later, AJ called to tell me that he was going to call our prime targets, but he'd need $400 for me to do so. When I told him that I couldn't do it, he quickly dropped his finder's fee down to $150. I had no money, but I had to give it a shot. So against my better judgment, I met AJ in the city and handed him $150 cash. He needed it more than I did anyway, so ultimately, I didn't care. After a week and a half, I heard nothing from AJ. I called his number to find it had been disconnected. Periodically, I tried the number again to no avail. Ray gave me AJ's landline number, but when I reached him that way, he sounded aloof. When I asked if he had the opportunity to call Lior or Russell, he said that he was going to, but didn't. When I asked him why, he told me, When I get around him, I get scared. That was the last conversation I ever had with AJ Scratch. May he rest in peace. How kids in the suburbs go to the mall, Rue and I went downtown. Soho was always our favorite place to window shop. Though neither of us could afford to buy any of the clothing we lusted over, it didn't stop us from looking. Many a weekend day was spent roaming the same sidewalks that all of our style icons did. While we looked, we'd talk about all of our plans for the future and fantasized about being rich and famous. We shared an ability to visualize what it would feel like and it gave us both confidence that it would happen, even if we had nothing to show for it. The more we window shopped, the more familiar our faces became in a few of our favorite streetwear boutiques. 
Though we had discussed pursuing music together, we hadn't quite done much about it in the first 10 or 11 months in NYC. We had both found our comfort zone and it was time to figure it all out. After a Sunday looking spree, we decided to grab the M21 bus a few blocks east to Jonas Schimmel's for some knishes. As the spawn of New York Jews, I felt like it was my duty to introduce Rue to Jewish delicacies. When we were summer interns, I turned them on to bagels, and since relocating permanently, we had moved on to knishes. During the short bus ride, we began what would be a long talk. So what about the label, Rue said. What label, I replied. Our label we gonna do. I don't really want to have a label. It's too much responsibility, I said. Nah, it's not. It'll be our label, 50-50. I'll handle all the business stuff, and you can just worry about the music. I guess so. I just don't want to get caught up in the business bullshit. I have no interest in that whatsoever. It's fine. I'll take care of it, Bruce said. I guessed it made sense. What did I have to lose? We began discussing names. I don't know why it popped into my head, but I remembered a t-shirt we had just seen in Pulse, which was one of our favorite stores. The shirt was the result of a collaborative, upstart clothing line by rapper Ja Rule and his manager-slash-record executive Irv Gotti. The shirt said Irving Jeffrey, which was a combination of Irv and Ja's given names, and to me, it sounded like the name of a designer, like Ralph Lauren or Tommy Hilfiger. The shirt was poorly made and designed, but the name struck a chord with me. Jimmy Joshua, I said with excitement. Rue's first name was Jimmy, and mine, you get it. Huh? Rue replied. Jimmy Joshua, that's what we should call the label. Jimmy Joshua, hmm, I kind of like that. But I don't want it to be Jimmy Joshua Records, because I want to make sure we can use it for other businesses in the future. Rue was a visionary, always lofty with goals. Jimmy Joshua Records did seem too obvious. As I thought about record labels, I remembered an interview I had seen about Def Jam. Kevin Lyles, who ran the label at the time, said the Def Jam was successful because they didn't consider themselves merely a record label, but rather a lifestyle brand. That was it. I blurted it out. Jimmy Joshua Lifestyle. It's not just music. It's a lifestyle. Yo, I love that. Jimmy Joshua Lifestyle is dope, Bruce said. We had discussed my music, my image, and who What's-His-Name was. After the meeting with Chris Lighty, how could this not be the topic of conversation? But this was no longer just college kids pretending. It was us planning for how we would market our product as a company, and we started within minutes of taking our first bites of knish. The common thread in our discussions was that I had a penchant for all things cool, be it clothing, music, slang, or otherwise. The way Rue and I spoke and the slang we used was infectious, and other people often picked it up. We'd make up terms and decide how we were going to start wearing certain things as our styles evolved. We were trendsetters naturally, and it was clear that we could use this to our advantage. The way we lived and our lifestyle was what I began to highlight in my music. It was real, and I didn't have to pretend like I was rich or a gangster. All I had to do was spit my cool in the best way I knew how, and it would all make sense in my head. It all boiled down to belief in ourselves, which begat swag. It was Jay-Z arrogance. It was Pharrell Williams finesse. But we did it in our way, and that became the Jimmy Joshua lifestyle. As 2003 came to a close, Rue and I were deep in Jimmy Joshua mode. We turned to our friend and fellow New York transplant Fuse Green for help with a logo. It had to look cool, but classy enough to use in future endeavors. No bad boy babies or so-so deaf Afro men for us. We needed a brand. And within a few days, Fuse brought our vision to life. 
We networked as much as we could in hopes of connections to labels, studios to record in, and producers to provide us beats. We printed up Jimmy Joshua t-shirts and gave them out to everyone we knew while trying our hardest to spread the name and let the world know that we existed. I started recording lots of music at a frequent pace, constantly updating my musical resume so that I'd be ready whenever an opportunity came our way. Rue used his gift of gab to convince everyone he'd ever met or known that I was the rap equivalent of the second coming of Christ and people started to believe it. Jimmy Joshua made my musical pursuit make sense. No longer was I blindly recording songs and trying to make random connections. Now I had a purpose and a goal and someone to help me with promotion, public relations, and the cost of recording music. It was almost 2004 and that meant it was time to attack the World Wide Web. My friend Tierno introduced me to Antoine, a Canadian who agreed to design our website for $500. We knew that What's His Name was way too hard to spell, so we went with www.whatsonline.com as our web address. The site had pictures, my bio, my music, and our logo nice and big so everyone knew the name of the company I represented. Antoine didn't charge us a lot, and he let us update, change pictures and songs, and make adjustments anytime we wanted. It was a great deal for us and yielded a pretty decent website for a startup label. Once the site was in place, our next order of business was to release a single. Websites and t-shirts were cool, but ultimately the music is what's most important. I needed a powerful song that would properly introduce What's-His-Name and Jimmy Joshua to the world. Naturally, I turned to Melvin and received a beat that I knew would make an impact. I had written a freestyle where I spelled out What's-His-Name, starting each line of the verse with a corresponding letter. I figured what better way to introduce myself than to spell my name, especially since no one would be able to figure it out if I didn't. I named the song Capital W and we pressed the record up on vinyl, just like I had done with ASAP many years before. This time we sent the record to BDS to properly encode it. There was no time for small mistakes. This was the real thing. It was go time. Fuse had done such a fantastic job with our logo that we went to him to design the round label that went in the center of the record. It was black, and our logo capped the top in white. Fuse thought it would be cool to put all of the info on the A side and to occupy the entire B side label with a pixelated close-up of my face showing only my left eye and cheek. He figured that with a moniker like What's-His-Name, it wouldn't hurt to be mysterious. For the B side, we went with Never, the song that Ski had produced for me a few months prior. Rue was never a huge fan of the song, but I was dead set on using it because Ski was who he was. I had worked so hard to get that beat that I couldn't let it go to waste. And I knew that anyone with any musical knowledge would be impressed that I shared a producer with Jay-Z, Little Kim, Fat Joe, and Camp Lowe. The single released to rave reviews from all of the DJs we knew from North Carolina, and Capital W began to pop up on mixtapes and college radio. The latter was cool, but it didn't get you BDS spins. We needed commercial radio to get on the boat, so we pressed on with bigger goals. Eventually, the song made its way to 102 Jams, courtesy of DJ Polo. But the airplay wasn't substantial enough to garner any real attention. It was near impossible to get a local record in rotation, and those were the type of spins we needed to impress a major label. So as Capital W made its way through the hip-hop underground, Rue and I concentrated on developing every aspect of my image. For me, creating music had never been a problem. I had been recording since I was 12 years old. 
Rue understood where I was trying to go, and together we worked to tweak certain aspects of the music to shift it in the right direction simply for marketing purposes. The goal was never to dumb down my music, only to highlight certain things that would make it more commercial without hindering the quality. Having Rue involved was great because I was only able to judge music from an artist's perspective. He brought a different angle to how I created and helped me to advance in my songwriting capabilities. The two of us worked our asses off and spent every second we could thinking about, talking about, or making music. Not a day went by where we weren't plotting, strategizing, or reading books like Sun Tzu's The Art of War and Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power, which seemed like the music industry must-reads. We even learned to play chess because it was a game of strategy. Somewhere in our minds, we considered that being skillful at making chess moves would translate into our business strategies. I had never been so gung-ho or focused on anything before in my life, and Rue's insane work ethic influenced me to grind as hard as he did. We both felt like we couldn't lose, and no one was going to convince us otherwise. One night, we took the subway to Lower Manhattan to see Little Brother perform at SOB's. I hadn't spoken to Fonte in a while, and I was happy to be able to catch up with him and Pooh. Before the performance started, I caught eyes with Ninth Wonder, whom I hadn't spoken with since before I left North Carolina. As we caught up, I introduced him to Rue and told him what we were working on. I noticed he was a bit more cocksure than I had ever remembered. He didn't hesitate to boast about his accomplishments. I don't know if you heard, but I just did a joint for Jay-Z, he said without looking at me. I hadn't heard, but it certainly explained the arrogance. Word? That's fucking amazing, man. Good shit. Thanks, man, he said. I'm supposed to be doing a couple joints on Destiny's Child album after working with Jay. You know, because of Beyonce. That's great, dude. I'm fucking happy for you. For real. You know we were never really able to link up and get a joint done. Let me know when you're ready, I said, simply making conversation. Yo, Josh, man, Knight said with that same uncomfortable smile that I saw at his house a few years earlier. He had never called me Josh before, and I got the feeling he was trying to sun me. If you would have been coming around and writing to my beats like I told you to, you'd be getting beats for free. But now, psst, I gotta charge you. Huh? I said. I couldn't believe how unnecessarily obnoxious his tone was. I wasn't trying to get free beats, dog. I was just trying to connect with you on some NC shit. I said, knowing that I sounded defensive. Listen, it's like Jay told me. Now that I've done a song with him and with all the shit I got coming up, if I ain't getting no real money or it's not coming out, it's pointless. I sat there silent, staring at him with a furrowed brow. I didn't know if I should punch him or laugh in his face. I mean, he said, I would really, really charge you like Jay-Z money. Jay-Z money? I responded loudly. What, so now you need like 10 grand for a beat? Come on, man, I said, screaming over Superstar by Group Home. Yeah, I mean, basically, Ninth said, still looking forward and not in my eyes. Yeah, that's fucking crazy, Holmes. Ain't no way in hell. At that point, I decided that the best course of action was to walk away. We had both said what we needed to, and it was in my best interest to leave before I cursed him out for being a dick. I headed towards the bathroom and saw Rue on his way out. He could tell I was perturbed. I told him about my conversation with Ninth, and he got angry. Rue had a short fuse, and when he felt disrespected, he was quick to be aggressive. His knee-jerk reaction was to approach Ninth, but I told him that it wasn't worth it. Man, fuck that weird-ass motherfucker, he screamed, and fuck his corny-ass beats. All them shits sound the damn same anyway. I don't give a fuck who he produced. I wouldn't give him 10 cents for a fucking beat. 
I decided that day that I wasn't interested in working with Ninth Wonder. I didn't care how big either of us ever got. I just knew that I didn't like the way that he spoke to me and he wasn't the type of person that I wanted to affiliate myself with. I was happy that someone from the North Carolina rap scene was becoming successful, but my distaste for disingenuous people prevented me from truly championing him. And though neither Fonte nor Pooh ever uttered a negative word to me about Ninth, I was far from surprised when Little Brother disbanded. 